And I want to thank all of you uh, for joining us this evening online. I certainly, when I was putting this teaching together, and I know I can speak for Sarah as well, that we wanted to do this on the field in front of you all. But as you have no doubt heard by now, uh, the storms that we've had the last several days and even this morning have just left us with field conditions uh, that really aren't a whole lot of fun for anybody. There's a lot of standing water. And so here we are. But hopefully, Lord willing, we will be reunited in person on the field next Saturday at 7 p.m. Uh, along those lines, before uh, we get to the teaching this evening, uh, I have a really important announcement to make that I want to make sure I'm as crystal clear as possible on, and that's that we're changing service times and we're moving our outdoor services to, ten, to Sundays at 10 a.m. So let me kind of rewind here a minute and, and explain where we've come from. Uh, if you're a part of our church, you know that we launched outdoor services uh, for the first time ever uh, in July. We did that at Sunday, Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., and it was, it was great. It was new. It was exciting. Uh, but the, the problem was we got a whole lot of feedback that it was basically um, burning people alive in the field with all that direct sunlight. And so we, we pivoted to Saturday evenings at 7 p.m., uh, basically in, in order to give you all the best experience that we could. Uh, but now as we're approaching the fall, we're in this place where sunset's getting earlier and earlier, and, and hopefully in the coming weeks it's going to cool down a little bit. And so we're going to switch back to Sundays uh, at 10 a.m. And the first Sunday that we're going to have services at, uh, on the field, Sundays at 10 a.m., is going to be September 20th. If you're wondering why we're not doing that now, it's because if you live local, you know that it really hasn't gotten a whole lot cooler just yet. So... Starting Sunday, September 20th, we're going to be on the field at 10 a.m. I really hope you can join us because no matter what way we slice it, we really don't have, given Maryland weather, uh, we really don't have a whole lot of opportunities to get together on the field um, uh, left this year, so I hope, hope that you can join us. So with all that being said, thank you for bearing with that announcement. I want to welcome you. Uh, we're in week eight of our series from, from the book of Acts, and uh, this evening we're actually going to be looking at what is... I think widely considered to be the most famous conversion story in history. It's a con conversion of Saul, the Jewish Pharisee, to Christianity. And uh, I'm confident that I'm going to call him Saul and Paul tonight. We should just get that out of the way in the front end. But let me go ahead and read his story to you. It's found in Acts chapter 9. I'll read 1 through 11 and then 17 and, uh, through 19. It says this. Meanwhile... Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, he said. I'm Jesus, the one you were persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him 
so he can regain his sight. Verse 17, so Ananias left and entered the house. Then he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is God's word. So since this passage is all about Saul's conversion, it gives us an opportunity to talk about conversion. And that word uh, doesn't really set well with people in our culture. I I think in and outside of the church, it's just a strange term to hear. Outside of the church, uh, in our culture, when you hear somebody calling for conversion, that that can be, you know, it can come off as as narrow-minded, intolerant, maybe even offensive. But but even in the church, I think that, that even Christians can sometimes not know what to do with this concept because a lot of people... Uh, you know, can think, well, you know, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, I've gone to church my whole life. I've lived a good life. Do I really need to be converted? And the answer of the Bible could not be any more clear. The answer is yes. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, that unless you are converted, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is an incredibly important word and concept to understand. But the difficulty is that even in Scripture, specifically in the New Testament, uh, conversion stories are incredibly diverse. I mean, some people's experiences are, are uh, very dramatic and kind of sudden. Uh, other people's experiences are, are more quiet, and, and it just seems like the pieces sort of fell into place over time. And so there's a there's a danger at looking any, at, at any one specific conversion story and sort of holding that up as the standard and saying everybody's story has to look exactly like that, um, which is, is wrong. And so I think it's more helpful, instead of thinking of conversion in terms of um, you know, certain steps that need to take place in a certain order, like there's a pattern, it's more helpful to think of conversion in terms of, of elements because there are certain elements that are necessary in order for there to be a legitimate conversion. And what's nice about Saul's conversion story is that his life in Acts 9 is, is broken down real neatly into three episodes, and each one of those episodes shows us in a crystal clear way one of the necessary elements of conversion. And, and again, before we get into it, I don't want you to think that I think that everything needs to happen in the same order or be manifested in the same exact way as it was in Saul's life. But his life really is, uh, it's a roadmap for us that shows us the necessary elements of conversion. And so um, during our time together this evening, I thought we would just look at the three elements we see in, in Saul's story. And so with that, I want to get to what's going to be our first idea this evening. Number one is this, conversion involves a collision with a God you did not create. Conversion, first and foremost, involves a collision with a God that you did not create. And we see that in um, Acts 9, verses 1 through 5, which say this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting. I just want to pause right there. So on on the road to Damascus, what happens is Saul is literally knocked to the ground. But sort of an interesting question to ask is what actually knocked him down? 
Uh, it could not have been the light that he saw or the voice that he heard because light and sound don't knock somebody down. The reason that Saul was knocked down on the road to Damascus is because he had a collision with the truth. What he came into contact with that day was a God who was literally, physically, cosmically there. A God who had his own reality, uh, a, a God that Saul did not create. And the reason I phrase it that way is because prior to his road to Damascus moment, Saul had a God that he had created in his own mind. A God that, that he wanted, a God that, um, that made sense to him. Uh, for instance, uh, prior to this moment, in, in, in Saul's mind, uh, God would never become a person. Uh, if he did, he would certainly never spend time with sinners. Uh, if he did, he certainly would never die on a cross, calling out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and certainly, if God went through all that trouble, he would not do so in order to extend grace to people and do away with the temple and the sacrificial system. That was Saul's God. And so because he was sure that he knew who God was, he was then sure that he knew the Christians were wrong about who God was, to the point that he was able to justify the violence that he was working against them to end this, this movement at that time that was called the way that he considered heresy. And so what happened here on the road to Damascus, first and foremost, is Saul discovered that the God that he had was nothing more than a God that he created. And so the, the first element of his conversion, and it's an absolutely necessary element in any legitimate conversion, is, is a collision with a God that you did not create. Uh, scripture says that, that God created us in his image. But the default tendency of the human heart is to try to create God in ours and everybody does this, in and outside of the church. We, we all have a tendency to create a God that, um, just like Saul, that makes sense to us. A God that, you know, doesn't offend us. And, and certainly a God that would never challenge us to change in any real way. Um, for, for instance, I remember uh, back when I was in the fire department, I was having a conversation uh, with a guy that I worked with on our shift. And uh, we got on the topic of, of God and, and morality. And so, purely out of curiosity, I asked him what he thought about the Ten Commandments. Uh, so I just, I rolled through all ten of the commandments, which I'm able to do uh, from memory for one reason and one reason only. It's because in fourth grade, I had a legendary teacher named Trisha Alexander who taught me a song that I still remember. I did not sing it to my partner that day, but I remembered all ten of them. So we went through all ten commandments. Shout out to you, Miss Trisha, for listening to this right now. Still learning from you. Um, uh, we went through all ten commandments, and, uh, and I, I just thought this was really funny. He said four of them mattered and six of them didn't because reasons. And so literally what that was in that instance, that's a real life example of somebody who created a God that was exactly 40% as holy as the God of the Bible. 40% is demanding, which I don't know if you find that as funny as I do. Maybe you find that ridiculous. But I think if you can get honest with yourself and look into your own life, you have to admit that every single one of us has a tendency to do that. All right. Now in our culture, people do not they don't tend to create a God like Saul's God. They don't tend to create the severe, strict, demanding, kind of high bar God of the Pharisees. But the average person in our culture, if you ask them, if they'll, if they'll grant you that God does exist, they would probably tell you, you know, God's an accepting God. He would never punish anybody. He would never hold anybody accountable. You know, just try hard to live a good life and, and feel bad if you don't, and, and that's good enough for him. And while that God is literally at the end of the spectrum, as, as Saul's God that he had prior to the road to Damascus, What's really important to see is that it's every bit as much a creation. Now, maybe you find yourself asking the question, what's the problem with that? And the short answer is everything. Because a God that you, or, or, a God that you create is nothing more than a projection of yourself. 
and, and, and it's nice, you know, on the one hand, that that God will never challenge you, uh, that he'll just support you and affirm you and, and never, you know, kind of knock you down the way that Jesus did on the road to Damascus with Saul. Um, but that God also can't help you because he's not greater than your heart. He's just a construction of your heart. And what you and I need more than anything else is a God who is greater than our hearts. And, and I'll tell you why. Because John said... Uh, who was on the inner circle of Jesus' disciples during Jesus' time here, John, writing First John, in chapter 3, verse 20, said that if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Now, what he's describing there is a scenario that's universal to the human existence in which we uh, fail to meet some standard that we set for ourselves. Maybe we let ourselves down. Maybe we let down people who are really counting on us. And, uh, and in the fallout of that, we deal with a great deal of guilt, a great deal of shame. Um, that's what it means. That's what Scripture's talking about when it's talking about your own heart condemning you. If you haven't experienced that, it's either because you haven't lived very long or you're just not being very honest with yourself. And what John said in 1 John 3.20 is that when you and I find ourselves in that place in life, what we need more than anything else is a God who... Uh, speaks into our life and tells us that we're wrong about ourselves, uh, that, our, that our value and worth does not depend on our performance, on how well we did as a mom or a dad that day, on how high we managed to climb the corporate ladder, on whether or not we lived up to our parents' expectations or even our own expectations. We need a God to remind us that despite everything that's still wrong about us, that he, that he still has a purpose for us and that his love for us is without condition in Jesus. Every single one of us is eventually going to need that. And, and the point of this is God can't do that for you and he can't do that for me if he is not greater than our hearts. Because on the one hand, it's fun having a God that, that we create because he's never going to challenge us. He's never going to call us to repent. He's never going to call us to love people that we would rather stay bitter at. He's never going to, he's never going to knock us down the way that he knocks Saul down. But the flip side of that coin is that while that God can't correct you, he also can't comfort you. And it's only when you have a God that can challenge you, a God that can contradict you, a God to whom you eventually have to say, God, I don't understand everything about you. And I don't, I, I don't understand what you're doing in my life or in the world around me. And, and to be honest, sometimes you infuriate me. But despite all of that, I accept you and I submit you, to you and I bow my knee to you because I know that you're there. It's only when you have that kind of God, which is found in Scripture, it's only when you have that kind of God that you then have a God that can tell you that you're loved when you don't feel loved. And so the summary statement here is that what we need more than anything is a God that's more than just the product of our needs. And a, t a telltale sign of conversion is that you begin to deal with a God that, that is, it's not, he didn't come from you, he's outside of you. And he's telling you things some that you might not want to hear, and he's showing you things, some that you might not want to see, both about himself and about yourself. It's then and it's only then that you know you're dealing with a God that you did not create. And so first and foremost, what Saul's conversion story shows us is that conversion involves a collision with a God you did not create. But the next thing that his life shows us is, is going to be our second idea. It's number two, conversion involves a darkness designed to help you see. A darkness designed to help you see. And we see this in verses 6 through 9. Jesus speaking to Saul said, But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. 
So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, it's easy to look at, at Saul's conversion story and, and, and believe that it's very sudden. And while it was certainly dramatic, I'm not sure that it's as sudden as it might at first look. Because when Jesus met Saul on the road to Damascus, he didn't simply appear to him and say, Saul, I'm going to lead you in the sinner's prayer. Would you repeat after me? Which, as a side note, if anyone in history was qualified to do that, I think it's the risen son of God. But what Jesus did here in Saul's life, essentially, he plunged Saul into darkness and basically said, all right, go to the city. I'll deal with you later. And so the, the, the story tells us that Saul is led by the hand into the city of Damascus where he sits in darkness for three days not eating or drinking. And the question that that raises for me is why did God decide to do things that way? And it's true that one of the things God could have been doing here is sort of driving the point home that Saul had been you know, physically blind uh, or spiritually blind his entire life. And so God was, was sort of proving that point by making him physically blind for a time. And while that very well could have been part of it, I think there's something more at work here. I actually think there was a very pragmatic purpose for why God decided to do things this way. Because if you think about it this way, what God did for Saul in, in plunging him into a, a period of, of darkness is, is he gave Saul, whether or not Saul wanted it, uh, a time to think uh, to reflect and to meditate completely apart from any distraction whatsoever. Not, not even distracted by food or drink, the text says. And, and it's ironically, as, as the life of, of Saul or Paul would go on to demonstrate, it's ironically only because of that time in darkness that Saul was eventually able to see for really the first time in his life. Um, and and, and what's, what's interesting is we have some really good ideas about what was going on in Saul's mind during that period of darkness. It's not really that hard to reconstruct because uh, Saul tells us in a lot of his writings in the New Testament, specifically places like Philippians 3 and Romans 7, uh, what was going on uh, that, that sort of led up to his conversion. And I, I think his conversion, I think things were going on in his life for several years, but I think a lot of what was happening in him took place specifically during these three days. So question, what was, what was happening in Saul's mind? And at least two things. First and foremost, what was happening in that period of darkness is Saul was rethinking his understanding of God. All right, I, I kind of touched on this earlier, but prior to what happened to him on the road to Damascus, Saul as a Pharisee would have rejected the idea that Jesus could have possibly been the Messiah because he was sure that the Messiah would be, based on his understanding of, of Hebrew scriptures, he was sure that the Messiah would have been blessed by God. And so Jesus, at the end of his life, uh, dying on a cross or hanging on a tree and calling out and saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Obviously, was not being blessed by God. He was being cursed by God. And so the idea that Jesus could be the Messiah and still go through all of that was an idea that, that was utter nonsense to Saul. But, but then, in the middle of that process, what interrupted that quite dramatically is, is Saul met the risen Jesus, literally, physically raised from the dead. And so during this three days of darkness, the primary thing on Saul's mind, he would have been thinking, well, wait a minute. I just met this man that died on the cross. And if Jesus has been raised from the dead, Saul would have known that meant that, that he, was, he was vindicated, that he was blessed by God. And so that must mean that on the cross, Jesus wasn't cursed for his own sins. It must mean he would have thought that he was cursed for someone else's sins, for mankind's sins. Saul would have thought, for my sins. 
And so Saul, having an amazing grasp of Hebrew scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament, having, having lived as a Pharisee, he would have taken that idea back to, to scripture. This idea that a resurrected Messiah was always God's plan A for redemption. And that would have made scripture come to life to him in a way that, that it would have been like reading a whole new book. And all of these, these paradoxes and these tensions and these riddles that the Old Testament leaves you with would have begun to get unraveled. For him in a way that, that really can only happen when you understand who Jesus is. I'll, I'll just give you a couple examples here. Saul would have known in the Isaiah scroll that at the, at the beginning of Isaiah, he talks about the Messiah as this strong king. Whereas at the end of, of Isaiah, he's talking about the Messiah as the suffering servant. And that doesn't make any sense until you understand that Jesus is the one true king who came to lay down his life for his subjects. You know, Saul would have been familiar with, with Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who both prophesied and pointed forward to a day when God promised to establish a new covenant with people, where he would write his law on our hearts, and, and we would have a, a relationship with him face-to-face like that of Moses. And so Saul, prior to Jesus, would have thought, well, how is that possible, apart from the temple and the sacrificial system and a priest in your place and all that kind of stuff? That would have only made sense when he met Jesus who was the ultimate high priest who laid himself down on the altar as the final sacrifice for sin so that you and I could enter into the presence of God without fear. Or or even Abraham. In Genesis 12, God promised him that he was going to bless him and through him bless all families of the earth. None of these things made sense until he he began to understand exactly who Jesus was. So first and foremost, he was rethinking his understanding of God. But secondly, Saul was also rethinking his understanding of himself. And really the reason that I'm not so sure Saul's conversion was as, as uh, sudden as it appears in Acts 9 is because in Acts 26, Saul recount, he kind of gives his testimony to a different audience and he includes a detail there that Luke does not include here in Acts 9. Here Luke tells us that when Jesus uh, stood before Saul, he said, why are you persecuting me? But in Acts 26, when, when Paul is telling his own story, He includes this detail and he he mentions that Jesus said to him right after that, he said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, uh, a goad is, is, it's a shepherd's tool and essentially what it boils down to is just a sharp stick and it inflicts pain on a, a sheep. But the reason that it's necessary is because, basically because sheep are stupid and sometimes they, they, it's necessary to save their life Uh, It's necessary to inflict pain on them to get them where they need to go. Uh, And so it's it's an amazing thing when you understand it that way, which is exactly how Saul would have understood it. Essentially what Jesus was then saying to Saul on the road to Damascus, just try to picture what this would have been like to be him. What Jesus was telling Saul was, Saul, you've experienced a great deal of pain in your life. I want you to know that I was the author of that. That's what Jesus was saying there. That just as a shepherd would inflict pain on his own flock, if necessary, in order ultimately to save their life, so Jesus was telling Saul, I've been inflicting pain on you. Not in order to hurt you, but in order to heal you and ultimately to save your life. And it's a hard thing to fight against that, isn't it? And, And Saul really lets us in on exactly what that process was like in Romans 7, where Basically, he gives us a behind-the-scenes look at his life and, and, and what led to him understanding how badly he needed a Savior and eventually giving his life to Jesus. I want to read these verses to you. This is from Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 10. Paul said, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. 
And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I want to focus on verse 9 here. He said, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Now when Paul talks about being alive apart from the law, it's an interesting thing for him to say because having been raised as a Pharisee, he would have had the law his whole life. There was never a time in his life that he was literally apart from the law. So, so what he means when he says that apart from the law he was alive is essentially that apart from the law, he had a decent self-image. That before the law revealed to him who he was, Saul was able to, to look at his own life and to compare himself to the people around him and to sort of look down on them and to tell himself, you know what, I'm more moral than them. I'm trying harder than them. I keep God's law better than they do. I'm a good person. And so in that sense, apart from the law, he was alive. But the problem, he says here in these verses, was the 10th commandment, which says, thou shalt not covet. I think it's interesting that Paul specifically says it's that commandment that gave him trouble in Romans 7. Uh, and the reason for that is, is that the 10th commandment to, that tells us thou shalt not covet, it's a unique commandment. Because the first nine, nine commandments, one thing that they all have in common is that it's possible to read, read those nine commandments strictly and in, in basically, basically through a behavioral lens and sort of entertain the idea that you're, you're keeping them. For instance, the first commandment says, have no other gods before me. So you can read that and say, all right, I don't have any idols in my backyard, so check that one off the list. And other commandments say things like honor your parents, don't steal, don't kill, uh, don't, don't uh, commit adultery, things like that. And so it's possible to read those through a behavioral lens. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said you really can't do that because they're more far-reaching than they appear. Uh, but, but the point is, with these first nine commandments, you can play this game where you convince yourself that you're doing a pretty good job of keeping them, uh, but you can't do that with the 10th commandment. Because the 10th commandment is about not coveting. And to covet something literally means to desire something so intensely that it, that it causes you to enter into a state of, 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 of discontentment. And, and so Saul, what happens here, is Saul, who was trying to build his identity as someone who was faithful to God, and, and, and worked as hard as he could to keep God's law so that he could, through his own moral efforts, save himself. What he's telling us happened in Romans 7 is that at some point in his life, he thought about that 10th commandment. And he, and he basically had this, this moment where he had to face himself and he said, wait a minute. So I'm supposed to love God so much and be so satisfied in his love for me. That, that I'm always perpetually content. And Saul looked into his own heart and he realized, I can't do that. And, and furthermore, he realized there's nothing he could do about the fact that he couldn't do that. And what he's saying in Romans 7 is that when that commandment came home for him, he died. Which means that his whole way of thinking, his whole self-understanding, his entire basis for his identity prior to that moment in his life began to unravel. And that ultimately is what led him to coming to Jesus because that's what showed him he needed a savior. Now, again, to kind of bring that into life in, 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 in our culture in 2020, it's highly unlikely that whoever you are listening to this, that you're building your identity the same way that Saul was. It's, it's highly unlikely that you're building your identity based on your ability to keep the Mosaic law. But the point is, every single one of us is doing the same thing that Saul did. We are trying to build an identity based on something. In our culture, we're taught to do it on the basis of our achievement. We are, we're taught uh, covertly and overtly um, 
to basically have this mindset that says, I feel alive because of my, my resume, because of the, the degrees that I have, the job that I have, the promotions that I got, the money that I have, the neighborhood, whatever it is. That's basically our, our, our culture's version of the same game that Saul was playing here. But the point is, the kindest thing that God could do for any of us, as painful as it is, is the same thing that he did for Saul, which is to let the whole thing unravel. Because it's going to unravel anyway. There's none, not a single one of us can keep up this game where we justify our existence and earn our salvation and our sense of self-worth and build our own identity. Sooner or later, we all eventually realize that we're not the hero of our story. And so a vital element of any legitimate conversion uh, is what happened to Saul in, in Romans 7. Something has to come home for us, the way that commandment came home for Saul, that forces us out of that mindset, that forces us out of that way of life, whether it's a, a, an intellectual crisis or some way that we disappoint ourselves that brings us to the end of ourselves. Because at the end of the day, you can't come to Jesus until you come to the end of yourself. That's how God's goads work. And it was that experience for Saul that led him to the place where he knew he couldn't earn his own salvation. He knew he was no longer competent to run his own life. He knew that he needed a savior. It was a painful process for him to the point that he described it like dying. But at the end of the day, there's nothing kinder that God could do for any of us than lead us through that same process. Because on the other side of that death is life and life eternal. So the second thing that we see in Saul's conversion story is that conversion involves a darkness designed to help you see. But, but thirdly and lastly, this will be our last main idea today, is that conversion involves an embrace that brings you home. And we see this in verses 17 through 19. It says, So Ananias left and entered the house. Then he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And so what, what happened, I know we kind of skipped the middle there, but what happened was that while Saul was in darkness in the city of Damascus, God came to Ananias, who was already a Christian, and he commanded Ananias to go to Saul. And I just want to real briefly look at what Ananias did, and then what Ananias said. First off, what Ananias did was he laid hands on Saul. And if, if, you, um, if you've ever had that experience, if somebody's ever done that for you, then maybe this next part's going to really resonate with you. But laying hands on somebody uh, is, is not magical. But what it is, is it's, a, it's very meaningful. Because when, when, when you're being prayed over and someone actually lays their hands on you, what that is, is it's a sign of, of connection. It's their way of letting you know that whatever you're going through, you're not going to go through it by yourself. And, and what it is, ultimately, it's, a, it's an embrace. That's what Ananias did for Saul. But, but what's almost more incredible to me is what he said. Because when he spoke to Saul and prayed over Saul, the very first word out of his mouth, according to, to Luke's account, is brother. He called him brother Saul. Now, understand, Ananias was not naive. He knew exactly who Saul was. He knew what Saul had done, probably to people that Ananias knew and loved. He knew why Saul was coming to his city of Damascus. He knew that he was probably on the roster for people that Saul was coming to inflict a whole lot of pain on personally. And that's why earlier in this passage in verses 13 and 14, Ananias basically kind of argues with God a little bit and says, that's the guy that you want me to go embrace? And God told him, yes. And obviously Ananias obeyed, but I don't think Ananias obeyed just because he had to. I think Ananias obeyed because he understood the gospel. Because if the gospel is true, 
then what it means is that absolutely anybody can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus, regardless of who they were, who they are, or what they've done. But the point of all this is that that when Ananias entered into Saul's life in that house where you can just picture him sitting in the darkness, you know, his, his entire life being recalibrated in those three days, when Ananias came and he put his hands around Saul, and he, and, he, and he spoke over him and he called him brother. It wasn't just Ananias doing that. It was literally as though God himself was wrapping his arms around this religious terrorist and saying, Saul, it doesn't matter what you've done. You're mine now. And it's time to come home. So, so when people ask the question, well, well, what does it mean to get converted? What it means based on Saul's life is it means you collide with a God that you didn't create. It means that you come under a deep conviction of your own sin and, and to the painful realization of how much you need a Savior. But the process of conversion is only complete when you actually believe. That means you need to have faith. And I had a conversation with a buddy of mine who's a Christian, and we were talking about how abstract this idea is for people. You know, if, if somebody asks you, well, how do I become a Christian? You can say things like, well, you just need to trust God. You just need to believe. You just need to have faith. But I think a lot of people have trouble understanding what that actually means. But having faith at the end of the day, all it really means is simply resting in God's arms, resting in God's embrace. It's laying down the burden of being your own master, of being your own savior, and trying to run your own life. There's, there's a line from this, this hymn I love. It says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. That's what Saul did that day. That's what's, that, that message, that idea, is what he would spend the rest of his life preaching. Uh, and, it's, and it's written down for us in a lot of the books that we call the New Testament. That's when his conversion was complete. And so that's what conversion entails. Based on his life, there's three elements. There needs to be a collision, there needs to be darkness, there needs to be an embrace. Now, we've, we've arrived at the end here, but what I wanted to do, I, I just didn't feel right concluding this talk until I answered a question that I think everything I've said Uh, raises and maybe it's a question that you on the other side of the screen are asking yourself right now and that question is very simply okay that's great how do i know if i'm converted maybe more people are asking that question uh than they're willing to be honest about but if that's you you're asking that question uh that's how i want to end speaking to that uh and the trouble like we said on the front end here is that because conversion experiences are so different and so diverse and so varied you can't look at the experience what you have to look at is the life that results Because as different as every conversion experience is, what every one of them has in common is that there are results. And again, in the life of Saul, we we see three results uh, that are crystal clear indicators that you legitimately have converted to Christianity. The first one is this, intimacy. Intimacy with God. In verse 11, we read, this is God speaking to Ananias. He said, get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him to the house of Judas and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul. I think this is so interesting. Since he is praying there. Why, why did it mean so much to God that Saul was praying? Because he's telling Ananias where to go. Ananias didn't need to know what Saul was doing inside that house. He just needed to know the house in which Saul was staying. But it's almost like God is saying here, Ananias, now it's time. He's been in the darkness for three days. Uh, now he gets it. Now he's ready. And the evidence of that is the fact that he's praying. Now, you might be thinking, Saul was a Pharisee. So he prayed every day of his life. He probably prayed seven times a day. But there is a world of difference. Jesus drove this idea home in his Sermon on the Mount during his time here. There is a world of difference 
between saying your prayers in a mechanical, rote, cold, religious sense and actually praying. And what happened here in Acts chapter 9 in that dark house is that for the first time in his life, Saul was actually praying. Because remember, he's in the darkness. He's not eating. He's not drinking. It's just him and his heavenly father. And that means that he had an intimacy with his heavenly father like he'd never known before. So the first sign of conversion is intimacy in your relationship with God. Secondly, a sign of conversion is uh, a desire for community. One of the most famous parts of Saul's conversion story is the question that that Jesus asked him when he met him on the road to Damascus. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And what Jesus was saying there, in no uncertain terms, Jesus was saying, I'm in every Christian. There's a part of me. There's a dispensation of me in every single person who puts their trust in me. And what that means for us today is that you can't, know, you can't simply know Jesus through one-on-one prayer, that you have to be deeply involved in community. Uh, that, that, and the reason for that is because there's a whole lot of Jesus that you are never going to see except in the faces of your brothers and sisters, which is why all through the book of Acts, you're never going to see somebody who is merely saved to a one-on-one relationship with God. They, get, they also get saved into a community of people who are also filled with his spirit and becoming more and more like him. So a second kind of... Uh, a sign of conversion is a desire for community. But thirdly, and this will be the last thing that we touch on uh, during our time this evening, is that um, conversion is marked by sacrifice. In verses 15 and 16, again, this is God speaking to Ananias. It says, but the Lord said to him, go for this man, Saul, is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. And I want to focus on verse 16 here. God said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, I can say with confidence that no one here is given Saul's exact calling. Nobody's called to do what Saul was called to do the way that Saul was called to do it. But the point is, becoming a Christian means entering into a way of life that is marked by a willingness to sacrifice. Because Christianity at its core is about a God who sent a Messiah who sacrificed everything to bring you and me home. And so when we enter into a life-giving relationship with Jesus, what that means is that throughout our lives, uh, what he did for us informs everything that we do. So the ultimate question that that anyone who who claims to be a follower of Jesus, this is one of the best gauges of our growth, the ultimate question that we should be asking ourselves is very simply, is my life more and more marked by a sacrifice like the sacrifice Jesus made to bring me home? Am I, am I growing in an understanding that this is not about me? Am I growing in, in, in unselfishness? Because that's all following Jesus is at the, end of the, at the end of the day. It's following a Savior who paid an infinite price to bring you into the presence of God, knowing that whatever it costs you and I to follow him, it's nothing compared to the price he's already paid for us. That's it. And that's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, first and foremost, I want to thank you for the conversion of Saul and the fact that you recorded for us in Acts chapter 9 because it is such a a hope-giving story that there is no person, there is no scenario, there's no situation that is beyond your power that you can't turn around on a dime. God, I want to thank you that you are a God who is still colliding with people and knocking us down when necessary. I want to thank you that you are a God who is still plunging people into darkness in order to help us see. 
that you are a God who stands ready to embrace us and bring us home. And God, for everyone listening to this who's already called on the name of Jesus, I just ask that they and and all of us would be continually marked. We, We would continually grow in intimacy with you, in community with each other, and in a willingness to sacrifice and live out what Jesus has done for us for the people that you've placed in our lives. But, but God, in closing here, for everyone on the other side of this screen that has not yet met Jesus the way that Saul did, uh, that has not yet converted to Christianity, God, I pray that your light would shine so brightly in their life that they could not help but take notice to it. That by grace, through faith, they would call on Jesus and come to know life and life eternal. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen.